Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another brand new episode of the Brain Food Show. Take two. Attempt to getting started today. We already recorded this intro, which is why it's so slick. Uh, my my headphone battery died just as we were getting started. We're about, what, one minute into the show? Yeah. And I was like, ah, let's just start again because I can't be bothered to edit this. Later. <laughs> it's always a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say, are we continuing our medieval series? Well, I bloody well know that we are because we already talked about this. This is part four. We're talking about A Knight's Tale. Uh-huh. And then we're going to talk about, if I can remember correctly, whether a knight ever rescued a damsel in distress. Oh, Did nope, I get nope. that right? Uh, wrong order. Yeah, Knight's Tale first, but you missed one. Is the main course is going to be on what was it actually like to be a knight? What did they do? Oh, what did yeah, they get up of course. To? And then, did, did, did a knight ever in the history of the world ever rescue a, a damsel in distress? Just one, just one example. That's all we need. And it's, actually, it's very interesting, actually. That's the best part of this show. I'm betting, like, this whole thing is, you know... Because I, I like live by the mantra that the past was the worst. It was. And I'm going to guess that being a knight kind of sucked. They were kind of knobos because they were just yeah. like, you know, Im- important due to live. Did they live outside of the law or am I just kind of like, they're kind of like lawless and stuff. And yeah. we yeah. just romanticized it. And I bet everything was terrible. Am yeah. I am I on the right path with that? You're on the, right, you're on the right path. Yeah. It's, quite, yeah. <laughs> it's quite good and interesting. And uh, yeah, in some ways, not not what people think, though also um, in other ways, but uh, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. You know, A Knight's Tale was one of the first DVDs that I ever owned along with uh, The Matrix. Really? The first DVD I ever yeah. saw was a crisp, uh, um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation on a computer because my friend had one and nobody else had DVD players. And it was like, whoa, look at this amazing video yeah. quality. Like it blew my mind. I remember I, we also had to watch The Matrix on the computer because obviously you didn't have like a DVD player in yeah. the living room. Yeah. And it'd be like, so it was, I mean, the quality's good and all that. Although now it's like yeah. coming back from like watching Netflix 4K on like a giant ass TV. You're like, yeah. wow, DVDs suck. Yeah. <laughs> Although not as bad as I thought they would. Like you see, you see like, when did I last watch a DVD? It must have been ages ago. And I was like, it's not that bad. Like, no, no and, and at the time it seemed so clear and crisp and like amazing. Yeah. Anyway, Night's I Tale. like the Night's Tale. I like where they're doing that, uh. Are they playing Queen music? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Where and it's, it's funny because like, a lot of boom, people complain boom. about that, right? The, like the modern music. But the, the director did point out that like even a lot of the classical music that people say should have been, would like that was after. They didn't have that at the time of this yeah, setting. Like, so that would have also been modern. The period. You'd be like listening to lutes and shit. No one wants that. I don't know. Although maybe fantasy people want that because they're like, I don't know. No, yeah, that was that was not my problem. I really, I really like that movie except for one part, which we're going to get into because uh, I'm going to go on a little rant on it because it just always bothers me about this movie. Uh, but I liked every other part of it. It's, it's one part. I like the modern music. It's a, it's a movie. Chill out. Well, and it's supposed to be kind of like a fun, you know, thing. And I, you know, but in any event, so Night's yeah. Tale. What? Uh, for yeah. those not familiar, those who haven't seen it, it's about the story about a guy named William Thatcher who pretends to be a knight, you know, competing in jousting competitions and everything. So, or so he can do that just, you know, for fame, fortune, and for the love of a woman. And he goes by the name. He takes the, the name Ulrich von Lichtenstein, who hails from Gelderland. And it turns out Ulrich von Lichtenstein was a real guy, a real knight. He was also a poet and uh, wrote a bunch of famous works and uh, a pretty notable nobleman. So um, a lot of his works and stuff focused on how uh, you know, when, Liechtenstein's a country. It's this tiny country next to Switzerland. Yeah, and he he had a castle. Um, castle Liechtenstein Ooh. actually was one of his castles. Okay. He had three castles, actually. Uh, so it turns out the character of Ulrich in the movie and the real guy, well, they seem to have had somewhat in common based on Ulrich's autobiography uh, called Fraunbuck or something. The Service of Ladies. Yeah, but sounds that, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, in any event, this is an autobiography, supposedly, but you'll see, like, uh, you know, not really at the same time. Uh, so so he, um, Ulrich wrote it around 1250 AD, was about 25 years before his death in 1275. And so, and noteworthy here, he was actually mentioned in passing for his jousting ability in several jousting books of the era. So he seems to have been an excellent jouster, similar to the, to the character. But going back to his autobiography and whatnot and what it says, so like his Hollywood counterpart in Fraunbuck, Ulrich claims much of his jousting exploits were inspired by a woman. In this case, it was a uh, higher-ranking noblewoman. The young knight, he, when he was a teen, he became enamored with her. Mm-hmm. But the thing about this noblewoman is she constantly rebuffed him. So, like, he did everything to try to win her over so he would wear her colors. It's completely unrealistic. Completely unrealistic. No. This guy was played by Heath Ledger. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> but you'll see this guy, this story with this woman is, it, it sort of mirror, mirrors the story there with the sort of spoiled brat of a woman in The Knight's Tale, uh, where she kind of rebuffed him a bit at first. So um, to start with, uh, Ulrich claims in his autobiography that he used to sneak into her bedroom at night so he could wash his hands in her yeah. bathwater and then occasionally drink wow, it. Wow, dude, that's yeah. a little bit creepy. Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it gets better. Dude, that's um, a little bit creepy. Yeah, I know, right? And this isn't, he's autobiography. He's 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 trying to Especially because she was like, I don't like you. Yeah. I don't and like she you. Was, Leave me alone. I'm not interested in you. And she and was an older. to her bedroom. Yeah, older married noble woman, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah, so then, uh, as as mentioned there, he would he would uh, joust in her name and wear her colors and everything like that and dedicate all his victories to her, which were apparently many. He sounds like and a just, stalker, to be to be right <laughs> honest right now. Yeah, and so, but apparently part of the reason she rebuffed him was because he has a, he had a hair lip, and so he did, he had a quite dangerous surgery to repair it, which she was quite flattered that he would do that for her. What's a hair And then, I think that's where you got the little, like, thing on your lip. Like Isn't that the, a cleft um, lip? Wait, is a hair lip and a cleft lip the same thing? That's what I was thinking, but let me see. Let's ask Google. Yes, let's do oh, that. Oh yeah, it definitely yeah. is. Yeah, definitely is. I mean, it right. or it looks like it. Yeah. Oh yeah. You search hair lip and the first entry is cleft lip on Wikipedia. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. So he has a surgery to repair this. She was very impressed with him. So she invites him to come ride with her, but he's too nervous to say anything. And so then she tears out a lock of his hair uh, as a sign of her displeasure and then uh, ceases to speak with him or respond to any of his letters and his poems that he wrote her for three years. And yet he was still obsessed with her. Um, and barred him from wearing her colors from that point on. But he got his finger, was severely injured, and he wrote her, you know, the love of his life, to tell her, I, I got I got hurt, my finger got hurt. And so uh, she doesn't believe him, says he, he exaggerated the injury, you know, for sympathy. And so Ulrich apparently, supposedly, cut off his finger oh. and sent it to her. <laughs> Dude, what is wrong with you? Yeah. I mean, she needs some hashtag me too on this one. Like, <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is not right. <laughs> no, he's a little crazy, but... She's quite flattered by it. She's a little crazy. He cuts off his finger. He's, she's flattered. Yes. And then she responds that the right she, will, message. she will cherish his digit uh, and look on it daily to remind her of his devotion. Um, so back in her good graces now. Wow. She, she says, okay, you can compete in my colors. Again, you can wear them. You can dedicate your, your victories to me. So then to try to win her over permanently, he goes on a jousting spree from Venice to the borders of Bohemia dressed as Venus, the goddess of love, during the competition. And he called this, now how would you pronounce this right here? Venus fart. Yeah, uh, means Venus journey, I guess. And so in his... Uh, I, know, I know the word fart means like, well, yeah, yeah. it says journey, but when you're driving on the highway in Germany, uh, I believe the exits are marked Ausfahrt. So I assumed that, I guess that must mean like exit journey then or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, I still find it quite amusing as a, as a 33-year-old man. <laughs> yeah. that you're just driving along the highway and it's like, ah, oh, the yeah. house fart. <laughs> yes. So yeah. um, for five straight weeks, he, he goes on this Venus fart um, and competes in hundreds of jousts. <laughs> Apparently, according to him, breaking 307 lances against just 271 against him and won many victories, obviously, for her. Um, Wait, so this, was, he'd lost almost as many as he won. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. And so from this, she, she says to him, all right, you've earned, you know, something. So I'm going to invite you to dress as a leper and wait outside my castle while the, with the other beggars who wished an audience with her. So he does this. And rather than see him, wait, however, is this fact, is this fact or is this like him writing in his own autobiography and that's the only source? This is his own autobiography, as you might expect, uh, seems to have taken some liberties on things in which we'll get into maybe why and sort of that what is very viable fact about all this in a little bit. But um, okay. so apparently she does not, she does not go see him. She just kind of leaves him out there and goes to sleep for the night. And so he's standing out there in the rain. And so he climbs up to her window using a rope that she eventually dropped down for him. Uh, but then um, she cut it and, and he fell into the water below in the moat as he was climbing. <laughs> you think he, at this point, he'd take the message, you know, in his, his autobiography, you know, she's just not interested or, Worthy of pursuing. I, I feel like, yeah, no, now would be taking the message way too late. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this is where we get to the part of the Knight's Tale, which I didn't like. And can you guess, did you, what would, if there's something in a Knight's Tale you didn't like, what would it be? Dude, it's been 25 years since I've seen this movie. Oh, okay. Wait, I mean, I saw it when it came out on DVD. I've not seen it recently. I remember that they sang Queen and they made the electric guitar sounds with a really long horn of sun variety. That's yeah. literally what I remember about this movie. All right, well. 
So well, you give have... me a clue then. Maybe I can get like maybe. Do you I'll remember really... the noble woman in there? Her her sort of character no, that no, they made. Not. Sorry. All right. So she was a spoiled brat and like completely nothing to her at all. Like so on the surface, mm-hmm. just pretty. That's what she had going for. Her. She was pretty and a noble woman. But in this, very similar to this woman. This is the problem. Is the other problem with this is when you look at the the Ulrich von Lichtenstein. You know, Will uh, Heath Ledger's character. He has right next to him yeah. the blacksmith Kate who's just as pretty, is intelligent, independent, hardworking, really skilled at her trade, which is also a useful one for a knight. Super down to earth, yeah, funny, but he's a, and he not needs, a spoiled he needs brat. Money. Yeah. She, does, he, she doesn't have any money. He's like, yeah. oh, I need your money. Yeah, woman. but is it just me? He's a gold digger. Is it just me? Or did, you know, he's got these two women. Like, the obvious one was there, and he picked the spoiled brat, but in any event. So, going back to this autobiography. So now he's, the rope's been cut. He had to fall in the moat after she invited him. And so he tells her, now I'm going to prove my love to you by going on a crusade. And this finally worked. He won his lady's affections. And uh, yeah, then uh, he, he, you know, gets her or whatever. And uh, presumably he doesn't mention the husband, you know, having a problem because she was married. And it turns out he was married too this whole time. Ulrich von Lichtenstein um, <laughs> was married in this whole saga. And uh, even, I you don't know, like either of these people. <laughs> yeah. And so his wife apparently did an awesome job of managing his estate while he was off trying to win the uh, affections of this other thing, of this other woman, and presumably on his many campaigns also, you know, with many other women along the way. So how much is this true? And uh, obviously people think probably not a super ton of it. Uh, it's probably mostly made up to what his whole point was to drive home the chivalric concept of, you know, doing, you know, honoring your lady in all things and whatnot. But it's kind of a mixed He's message. Married. Yeah, because <laughs> he had a wife. So, you know, mixed messages, Ulrich. Um, but yeah. Uh, so Ulrich's uh, adoration for noblemen was aptly described in the very beginning of Brown Book, his autobiography, where he states, I greet thee, ladies, one and all, through though my reward was ever small, for serving them I must confess what wealth of virtue they possess. They're all the world can have of bliss, for God made nothing else like this. A noble woman, that is why my praise of them must be so high. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's very, I don't know, what's, you have grades. What, what age yeah. would a child be about 12 or 13? What grade would that be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to be fair, this was a time when most people couldn't read it all. So, you know, and it's a translation, of course, but still. Oh, okay. So, oh, variable. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it feels like very yeah. sing-songy, rhymey, doesn't it? Although I have yeah. no understanding of poetry. Dude, have you seen the yeah. movie uh, Peterson? Uh, not Peterson. Patterson. Mm-mm, no. Okay, it's this movie. Nothing happens. And people will have a go at me with this. It's got like 90% on Rotten Tomatoes or something insane. And it's about this guy who's a bus driver and he wants to be a poet. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I just guess I'm an un, you know, cultured hooligan because I'm like, his poetry sucks like it's <laughs> i mean i'm like what what are you talking about i mean i don't need poetry to rhyme i really don't like rhyming like this is like childish almost you know but like yeah. shakespeare it's like okay i get it it rhymes and it's very clever yeah whereas this was just like i don't know i felt like it was the modern art equivalent or the jackson pollock <laughs> like that of, like of that paint, uh, uh, of poetry we had that one that one article where the person had the, the modern art where it was just like trash in the thing and then the janitor at the museum yeah, cleaned yeah. it up and got in a lot of trouble because <laughs> he just thought it was Well, trash. I feel that, I feel like this, how did we get here? I, I just, I'm just going on a rant <laughs> about poetry. But I'm yeah. like, I feel like this is just like the modern art of, uh, like the bad modern art of poetry. And then I found out afterwards, like I think I phoned, I was having a phone call with my dad who'd also seen the movie. And he was like, oh, you know, the poetry was so good. It was by this like, famous poet who wrote it for there or something or and all of this stuff so i look this guy up and i'm like what is going on it's that i just don't understand it's just it doesn't seem clever it definitely doesn't rhyme and i don't need it to rhyme well and presumably in a movie do they probably have like dramatic music playing and stuff and like themed or something so it helps add a little bit sucks i don't know watch that movie well i can't tell you to watch movies i haven't still seen haven't seen the princess bride but yeah I, don't, I just didn't get it. Anyway, uh, enough about poetry. I just, I just, yeah. yeah. So Ulrich, was he was a, my a, life. a well-known poet of his time. But um, so what we do know about him, he was born in 1200 in the Duchy of Styria, which is um, in modern, south of modern day Austria. 
Um, and yeah, he became, as many knights in his early teen years, he became a squire to the, um, in this case, to Magrave Henry of Istria, uh, the son of the Duke Berthold the Fourth. Ninety-six. Where are these places? I'm sorry. Ninety-six percent <laughs> is what that movie gets. Well, you're talking about uh, a selection bias here, though, because like the people, the I people know, who go to see that movie. Well, no, but the people who go no, to see that movie are going to be like, oh, okay. The, 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 the audience give it seventy-two percent. And to be fair, yeah, they're, they're you know, yeah. you're right as on the selection bias there. But anyways, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, carry on. I just I just googled that while you were talking about something that I wasn't paying attention to. My bad. Yeah, Ulrich uh, ultimately was made a knight by the Duke Leopold VI of Austria in his early 20s, and he became a high-ranking yeah. commander, provincial judge later in his life, and obviously a poet and all that. Um, also, he had a castle in Liechtenstein, a castle in Strachau, I don't know, Strachau in Morau, and later gave his, his castle in Morau to his son, Ulrich II. So um, he lived in relative peace, and Wish that is why... Someone could be a castle. Like, yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Um, he really, Sweet. Why he had all this time to do this, right, and everything was, of course, in joust and all that, because it was quite um, peaceful, um, reasonably so, at his time. So he did what many knights do, which we're going to get into shortly in the next part in the main course on what knights actually got up to. And we don't have a sponsor today. Oh, we do. We do. Okay. I mean, we don't. But let's just say that uh, we've got highlight uh, history. Our, our channel. Exactly. We're our spies. channel highlight history. Yeah. We're, we're getting back on it, right? We've got it some new episodes well. coming up. They're publishing out. It's and going, it's going the nice. The latest. It's what happens when latest. you publish videos. <laughs> I know. It's amazing. The latest video actually had the top comment is this is your best channel, Simon. Um, right in front of everyone in the comments that upvoted anyway said business plays was, was number two this one so oh no that person's that person's a liar everyone knows business place is number one yeah yeah i mean less people watch it but the people who do rabbits i love it yeah yeah a bunch of legends yeah Yeah, absolutely (laughs) what have we got coming (laughs) yeah what have we got coming up on highlight history well i guess by the time this goes out maybe it's already out but we've got as you know they've got really cryptic names (laughs) i recorded them a while ago i know i know what they are yeah that's right we we did record a lot of them quite a long time ago uh, which people have noticed that your sign, your neon sign is on in them, in some of them. And like, yeah, that's whatnot. true. My transformer blew on my neon sign and I haven't got a new yeah. one yet. It's been months. I'm just, I'm a busy dude. Yeah. So we got coming up the game, which is sort of like the Game of Thrones re- reference, but not about the Game of Thrones. Actually, oh, I just life. lost the game. Like, oh, <laughs> I just lost the game. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? No. No. I, so the game is that you don't think of the game. That's everyone. You're now playing the game. You don't have a uh-huh. choice. Everyone okay. who's listening is now playing the game. And the whole point is that you lose the game every time you think of the game. It's like a psychological thing. Uh-huh. And uh, I just lost it. And so did everyone listening. So there you go. yeah, congratulations. Um, then we have first, which was about the first women across the continental divide in the US. I think it is. Oh, wow. These are really vaguely titled. Nothing less. I have no idea what that one's about. <laughs> capturing William Wallace. Oh, Capturing William Wallace. A Tale of Two Brothers. Oh, that one's really good. Everyone should watch that one. It's about, I like how I'm like, I have no idea what these are about. I recorded oh no. them and you're like, I have no idea what this is about. And you wrote it. <laughs> yeah. A Tale of Two Brothers is really good about um, uh, two of uh, one of Hitler's uh, sort of right hand men and his brother. It's oh, so good. They should make the, a movie. Uh, they should Albert totally Goering? make a movie about this. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Uh, I believe that was mm. the name. Mm. Yeah, they should make a I movie this about this such like, a legend. dual thing that going on there. Yeah, this would be such a good movie. Was it Albert Goering? What's his brother? Hermann Goering's brother. Yeah, yeah. Was uh, like a. something. A hero. What's he the was, opposite but, of anti-Semitic? It's probably he not never, Semitic. Like, but he, he was never like, got rescuing credit. all these Jews. Yeah, he never no. got credit for anything. And everyone, and everyone hated him because of his brother. Like after the war, everyone just mm. shunned him. And he, I think he died like an alcoholic in his like little tiny apart, one room apartment. You know, like. But, also, uh, have you seen a picture of this dude? No. Just, if you just Google him, he looks like he's, he looks just cool. You just yeah. look at him and you're like, that guy's cool. Yeah. You look at Herman Goering. He looks terrible. And he was also a monster. <laughs> Yeah, 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 totally. Oh, how mm. how Tolkien's writings were a mythology for history of England. That one. Oh my god, I was... just recorded this. It was so boring. <laughs> I knew you would think it was so boring. Uh, and uh, I mean, it is. You definitely like, want to be a Tolkien fan. So he wants to make up a mythology. Fantastic. And it's like, dude, it's like forty minutes long. Yeah, but the depth Tolkien went to to sort of like tie it into real English history was amazing. Uh, or at least yeah also my bus like, timetable goes really into depth about the times of the buses does not make it interesting uh well how about the curious case of the king who almost lost his country after his hat fell off oh oh yeah no that was good i like that 
I just don't like anything to do with wizards. That was too. He's like talking about goblins and shit. no one cares. At least I. I mean, people do obviously because that video I'll probably do great. Yeah, I knew you'd. I knew you'd be put to sleep by that one. Like by the end. Oh my god, was I ever? I had to take like a break halfway through. <laughs> Well, and all the pronunciations uh, too, I'm sure are going to be like hilarious. Oh, I just gave up. I just gave up. I didn't even look them up. I was just yeah. like, nah, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. I'm not doing this. And it was like, uh, there were so many. And I'm like, a lot of them are in like Forvo, which is a big pronunciation dictionary. But I'm mm. like, look, everyone knows I don't like this. So yeah. just, just deal with it. Yeah. Should we, uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that plug, that, that sponsor. They must have paid well. In, in, Quote marks, yeah. Twenty <laughs> percent of the sponsor read was me describing how I didn't like one of the videos. Ah, <laughs> uh, should we move on to knights? Yes. Yeah, so, so, what did what did knights actually get up to uh, during medieval times? And of course, the normal caveat that we're talking about a thousand year span here, and and like various groups of people. Accurate. So, what was it actually like to be a knight, and what was their day to day lives? So, in the early days, in the first, it was just as you will come as no surprise, warriors on horseback. It was just that was kind of the thing. Uh, and the position of knight, the sort of official position came about in around the 8th century with Charlemagne's shoulder, soldiers. Uh, and the qualifications there were just to be like a really awesome soldier on horseback. Uh, you didn't need to be noble or anything like that. If you were just really good or distinguished yourself, uh, you could be sort of... So at their core, knights were and always were uh, until they became obsolete, elite warriors, even the, even the nobles. Like that's what they trained for, for basically their entire childhood for... And so in the beginning, the, tra the training wasn't it's actually nice formalized. It's meritocracy uh, back in the day. What's that? Oh, I just said it's nice that it was kind of meritocratic. Like it was based on ability yeah. rather than yeah. inherited stuff. I kind of assumed, ah, oh, your dad's a knight, so you'll be a knight and this kind of stuff. Yeah. There's a dude that I think we're making a video about for biographics called Oswald Mosley, who's like this far right pro-Nazi British figure. And so I look mm -hmm. him up on Wikipedia to make sure like, you know, should we cover this guy on, on the biographics channel? And he's like, Sir Oswald Mosley. And I'm like, oh. they knighted this like, and his bi biography is just like, this guy was a pretty hideous person. Like he was a, he was huh? a terrible man. Like he's just yeah. a right wing nutto. And I'm like, why is he a knight? And like the first line on Wikipedia is he was not knighted. His title is inherited because he was the baronet of something or other. I'm like, good, oh. but they should get rid of that. Cause there's also Mark Thatcher, uh, Margaret Thatcher's mm -hmm. son, I think, inherited mm -hmm. his Sir Mark from his dad, who was knighted, uh, Margaret Thatcher's husband, I don't remember why. And he mm -hmm. was like involved in some coup, like in an African country, <laughs> like a few years ago, maybe like a decade yeah. ago or something like this. And it's like, wait, why is he a sir? And it's like, oh, no, I inherited it. And I'm like, we should stop that because yeah. I like the fact that, you know, getting made a knight or whatever, it's like you did something awesome. Whereas it's like, no, you inherited it from your dad and it turns out you're just a Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, in the beginning, you just had to be an awesome warrior. Didn't matter. Like you could make your, you know, just distinguish yourself in battle and you become a knight. I like and, it. Um, yeah. yeah. So when do we get into this uh, inherited yeah. thing? It sort of became formalized, the training over time. So it just became a thing sort of, you know, send off your sons. And there actually were a, a, a handful of examples of female knights, but mostly sons. Uh, when they reached around the age of seven, you're like, well, these kids are annoying and she get rid of them. Um, and so they send them off, usually send them off to be, uh, you know, serve at some other, you know, lord or knight to sort of just start their training, which in the beginning was just practicing with like fake weapons, helping around the house, um, learning to master riding a horse, taking part in hunts, usually is obviously is sort of an assistant um, and lots of menial tasks, like just for the lord or whatever. In the beginning, being educated wasn't really a necessarily part of this, dependent on the, the, the person's background and everything. So many, many of the early knights were not well educated. And even throughout, like they weren't all educated, but it did become a thing to also educate, particularly if they were the more wealthy ones, to educate them. And uh, eventually, uh, as well, to teach them the ideals of chivalry and the various legends of supposed knights. So even though in sort of modern times, you think it might be like a modern invention, a lot of this like ideas that we have about knights, but no, even in their own time, like a certain point, it became uh, sort of embedded in their own thing, even though the reality was a bit different. So yeah, once so they they had these things, they just didn't obey them. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh. And we'll, we'll we'll get into why in great great detail. But so in their early teens, they would uh, if they had progressed well with their training and everything, uh, they would then uh, graduate to being squires. Which at that point, they would start using real weapons, and training is intensified a ton. And they even would sometimes take part in battles and assisting the knight and whatnot. So it could be kind of dangerous as well. And then after about five to seven years of that. 
again, this is when the, the, the training became formalized, which it wasn't um, in the beginning. So they would have of that sort of higher training if they'd mastered all the skills uh, and they'd be officially knighted and everything. And in the beginning, there was no this wasn't like a ceremony. Like you think of it, it was just like, yeah, yeah, you're completed your training. Good job. You know, but uh, eventually it became much more formalized, the ceremony. And this was also partially pushed by the church. They wanted to formalize it because they really, really wanted the knights to start actually taking their chivalric oaths seriously and because uh, they just didn't. And so the, the church really formalized it and made it a whole like thing, you know, that you had to do. Um, yeah. And we're going to talk about this again um, when we get into the, the medieval knights actually rescue a damsel in distress uh-huh. later. So by the 14th century, French knight Geoffrey de Charny, he states of the day of the knighting. So this is how it evolved up to this point. The squire would first go to confession, then take a bath. And then he would be clothed mm-hmm. primarily in white and red. And then he would take part in a prayer vigil. Um, again, this became very closely tied with the church for to try to you know rein the knights in a bit. Um, then he would take attend mass, uh, take part in communion, and then during the actual ceremony, be giving sp- given spurs and a sword, and then pledge his loyalty to his lord, and then take take his oath um, various to the various facets of chivalry, and then dubbed via a light blow and a kiss. Uh, this this is actually given rise to the idea that they would just like punch him or like that sort of thing, and it'd be like this is the last oh, time you're going to let. That. Yeah, but that that does not really like how it was just a light blow and then a kiss like okay. or, or at least it seems like it it's a bit of a weird thing to have yeah yeah so yeah again early days uh, pretty much anyone most soldiers could could become knights but as it became sort of more formalized and everything and it became elite and more prestigious it tended to be eventually you had to actually already be no, a nobility of some sort even just the son of a knight which was a really low form of nobility which gets into the myth that most knights were wealthy and that that's not true at all quite a lot of them we're just, we're, we're not, they, you know, just, they even sometimes had to live in their Lord's manner. Um, and they, and when they did that, they tended to be like bodyguard security, that sort of thing. Uh, and that, that is a lot of what they actually, most of them got up to was just that like kind of a mishmash of a police officer and also soldier, um, just, uh, and just kind of doing that. But they also sometimes would mediate, uh, disputes between the peasants under them or under their Lord. They might be tasked with that. And of course, because you have this wide range of people, some some of the knights weren't even really educated, really. They're, I mean, poor by modern standards, but of course, you know, had a lot more than a typical peasant and a lot more freedoms. But on the other end, you had like kings, you know, so uh, depend on what they actually got up to on day to day depended a little bit on that. Like, what was their wealth? Did they have an estate? And if they did, you know, there was uh, managing the estate and the peasants under their control was part of the thing. But... Because they got called away for lengthy periods often to go campaigning because they were pledged to their Lord uh, to serve for a certain time each year, a certain amount of time to go do whatever the Lord wanted them to do. Uh, so they, because they were gone a lot, if they did have an estate, they tended to have someone who managed it for them. So on the whole, most of these knights, uh, the, the more wealthy and whatnot, just really didn't have a lot of things to do. And even the bodyguard ones, I mean, it's not like they had a lot to do on day to day for the most part. So what did they actually do? And it just seems like they ran amok, like just going around terrorizing everyone just because they had nothing better to do. Um, and they could. Oh. Like, yeah, like they could. And the peasants really didn't have much recourse other than like a mass revolt or something, which did happen from time to time. I always think like, you know, the past is the worst than that. And I always think, I always go to like the best case example. Like I'd rather be me living today than the king back in the day. Oh yeah. But then totally. it's like, that's, of course. And then that's being the king. Yeah. If you were a peasant though, Wow, life was uh, not a good was, time. No, every facet of it. And we're going to get into in great detail in the dessert today, which is the best part of this episode. So stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was actually their penchant for causing anarchy seems to have been partially what, what inspired the First Crusade. So according to history professor Norman Cohn, to quote him what inspired it was, Also a matter of giving the largely unemployed and over-aggressive nobility of France something to do. Get them out of Europe and stop them devastating the lands. Oh, no. Yeah. So now, just get out of here. It should be noted, but like by modern standards, of course, they, they did. They sound like listless teenagers. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, kind of spoiled brats a bit. But um, by modern standards, of course, they did sort of terrorize their own peasants and everything. But they didn't really like actively try on the most part to, you know, you don't want your peasants to revolt. And if you go around like slaughtering and raping them and all and pillaging your own peasants, like that's what's going to happen eventually. And it's not, that's not just not good business. You're trying to manage your state and have good farm production and everything. So it's not good to just go like, you know, hurting your own, your own peasants. So a lot of this more egregious behavior tended to be against everyone else's peasants, because that was a great way 
to harm like your neighbor, or especially if it was like a, a ways away, you were off campaigning a little bit, and then you could you yeah. could just destroy fields, kill peasants, and it really hurts that noble because that's their you know their lifeblood is their peasants uh, in a lot of ways. So and and you know the peasants can't really do anything about it, and they you know you got the sword and all this, and they got nothing you know like pitchforks, so one knight can can uh, do that. So so we have uh, uh, sort of uh, illustrating this uh, and how uh, so how noble it it was for a knight to actually not do that when you're off campaigning and you see someone else's peasants to not slaughter them. Mm. Like, so we have this 12th century chronicle, chronicler, Orderic Vitalis extols the virtue of a knight for choosing not to slaughter a group of peasants. Uh, As outlined by historian (laughs) uh, Catherine Hanley in her book, War and Combat 1150 to 1270. Yeah. I didn't kill a large group of poor people. Yeah. Yeah. And this, uh, he describes so, a raiding expedition undertaken by a young knight during which his men destroy the homes of a group of peasants and kill their livestock. The peasants themselves flee to huddle around a cross. The knight spares their lives. And this charitable deed, according to Vitalis, deserves to be remembered forever. So, noble <laughs> so I'm guessing this was a very rare occasion where they didn't just slaughter all the peasants. Yeah, yeah. Someone else, if it's your neighbor's peasants and you're, or, or you're off campaigning, that's just what you do. So to illustrate that... We have 12th century knight and lord Walleran, Count of Melant. Uh, so noted as, uh, rather than slaughtering, he went ahead and just cut off one of the feet of each of the peasants he encountered while in his enemy land. So, of course... Again, uh, hero. Yeah, merciful you know, hero. So, I know. Yeah, but, and this, this hurts the lord in two ways. One, it makes the worker much less useful. And then also gives the, the other lord a, a, a crippled person to, to deal with and who's not happy, presumably, for the, the lord didn't you know, protect him. I was, I was reading about this... I think it was the Vietnam War when the Viet Cong, their primary method wasn't to like injure the soldiers. It was to hurt them because then they'd have to like rescue the com- their comrade that, you know, the, the Americans or, you know, the other side would oh, have yeah. to carry the person out of the jungle. And this was a massive thing or bring a helicopter to get them out. And it mm-hmm. was like super labor intensive, super expensive. Whereas if you just kill someone, it's like, well, they don't have to do any of that stuff. So yeah, that's quite they clever. were aiming to maim rather than to yeah. kill. And I'm like, well. Well, and if you're that That's if you're crazy. that Viet Cong soldier, you probably like that better too, though, just because you're like, hey, I don't got to kill someone today. Like, I'll just hurt him, and then he'll go home. That's true. It's kind of a win-win, <laughs> yeah, for everyone. So yeah. So what did what did they uh, do? What did they get up to when they weren't raping and pillaging and you know being police officers and whatnot? So um, mostly parties, super common. Uh, they they partied a lot, oh. which we we got into in great detail in the uh, the podcast episode, a disturbing tale, and the trial of the century that led to women jumping out of cakes. If you want to go listen to that one, it's quite uh, interesting. So when they're not doing all of that, they mostly just did things like attend mass. They played backgammon and chess and the like. Those were, those were popular as, as, as time went on. The ones who could read could read, you know, read books, but there obviously weren't a lot of books in medieval times for quite expensive. And the other thing, the main must thing... must have been written by hand or something right back then without the printing yeah. press. Yeah, so you had to have like a... Wow, quite, quite time consuming. But yeah, super. And so the other common activity, and this is what they did a lot board nights and this is part of the reason why everyone wanted them out of town was training and so like so what did they do when they train in they they would go hunting and you know like when they're hunting they're not worried about trampling peasants lands and you know things like that too much uh and why would you be yeah no and attending various tournaments and these tournaments in the beginning so you think about like a knight's tale where it's all very organized and everything but that didn't that didn't take place until much later like in in for most of the time especially in the beginning they were just mass melees like it was almost Real sharpened weapons. They were just literally like battles. Like they would even group just the knights by nation. All. Yeah, groups group the knights by nation, which obviously didn't help. And so, and the only real difference between real battle and these was just that they were they were really focused on capturing the other knights instead of necessarily killing them because they were if you captured them. So they actually had people. They would hire peasants and stuff to come and beat and beat the knights once they knocked them off their horse. So they would beat them up, and then so they could get their armor off, and then they're more easily uh, kept captive um, if they're really beat up and everything. And then at the end, of course, they would offer a ransom. They would, okay, we captured your knight. Now we'll ransom or trade him back. And then the, the knight would also um, be offered their horse and armor back for a price, of course. And so this was, it was all about, you know, kind of training for real battle in very, in very real ways. But um, yeah, but, and also making money. And, and particularly for poorer knights, this was a great way if you're a really good soldier to, to actually make your fortune or whatever and get, um, acquire a lot of, a lot of money. But the problem is, they got all these knights rampaging around having fake battles 
And this must be so infuriating for the peasants who are just like, they're not even real war fighting. They're just like having fun. And yet the peasants who are sitting by, they're not safe. They're fair game. Like if, if one knight would go flee in some peasant's house, the other knights could come yeah. and burn the house down to get him to come out. Like, <laughs> like this was a thing and, you know, like whatever. And they're trampling farm fields. And this did not sit well with, with the people. And then eventually the church did not uh, care for this. It also, so of course, to calm things down, they started pushing more of the, the chivalry and all that stuff. And also more and more rules over time started to be put in place about what you could and couldn't do at these tournaments. So it started to become very organized to the point where you started to get more of what's depicted in Hollywood, where you have like jousting, where there's like a, a center thing there for them. So they're each on one side. So they're not running straight into each other, which I mean, originally they were just jousting in fields and stuff and just, you know, it was a lot more dangerous. And they started using tipped, tipped jousts, uh, or I mean, um, blunted jousts, I should say, instead of the real thing okay. to knock each other off. And, uh, and so it kind whatnot. of went from like death match to sport. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that, that's a, a surprising number of sports. Like even when you look at like soccer and like things like this in the earliest days, they were just kind of like free for alls of like beat yeah. each other up. And then, and then slowly <laughs> you're like, maybe this isn't such a good idea. It wasn't that, that like um, one of the uh, ancient peoples, like, like one of the Alamex or something of South America, they played a sport with a ball, like basketball and football, like combined. And then the team that won, they'd be executed. So if yeah, you won, yeah. they'd yeah, they'd kill you all because then you'd go off to heaven or whatever they believe. Yeah, it was one of those. I can't remember. Sacrifice. That might have been one of I don't know. I've I've read that too. I don't know if I've ever done an article on it though. Or maybe I saw one of your videos or something on it. But yeah, it was something like that. Maybe. Yeah, and it was yeah. I don't and remember the people, which peoples it was, but yeah. But yeah, like they were or one of these. Yeah, it was something. And there was like there were specific reasons and the type of people who get, who were selected to be in the matches too. I can't remember. Mm. Mm. But yeah be pretty bad i'd be like let's let's just not win yeah. maybe this magical aztec heaven isn't real oh and, and one other thing the church sort of put in place eventually was that uh if you it's sort of a rule that got made where if you violated your oaths of chivalry in really egregious ways like they were violating them all the time but like in just really egregious ways you could be banned yeah, i'm like wait you've slaughtered groups of present peasants yeah. like yeah yeah you could be banned from competing in tournaments um was was the sort of the the retribution for that you committed a small genocide eh, no more sports yeah but otherwise they they uh, would campaign around too for certain times of year you know for for their lord which i mean that was super profitable particularly for the for the poor because they're off you know raping and pillaging other people's lands and stuff so they could bring home uh, a lot for themselves and their lord but it's also really a terrifying and extremely deadly uh, so so we have this account um, from the aforementioned 14th century knight Geoffrey de Charny, who states, In this profession, one has to endure heat, hunger, and hard work, to sleep little, and often to keep watch, and to be exhausted and to sleep uncomfortably on the ground, only to be abruptly awakened, and you will be powerless to change the situation. You will often be afraid when you see your enemies coming towards you with lowered lances to run you through and with drawn swords to cut you down. Bolts and arrows come at you and you do not know how best to protect yourself. You see people killing each other, fleeing, dying and being taken prisoner, and you see the bodies of your dead friends lying before you. But your horse is not dead, and by its vigorous speed you can escape in dishonor, but if you stay, you will win eternal honor. So from his account and uh, many other knights of the era of, of, you know, like what their actual battle life was like and everything, it's not uh, maybe any surprise that modern scholars think that most knights tended to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, which uh, doesn't seem to have been uncommon, which maybe uh, explained, you know, some of their behavior. Uh, Dude, back. if I was a peasant in like yeah. back in the day, I'd suffer from post-traumatic stress yeah, disorder true. just from the, the brutalities of everyday life. Yeah. Like if you sent me back to like the, I don't know, when was this like, when is this going on? Uh, so uh, from about the 5th to 15th century. Okay. So if you sent me back, let's say a thousand years ago, I think I'd have post-traumatic stress disorder if I was just there for a day. <laughs> yeah. like, oh God, what? Yeah, but years of therapy. <laughs> yeah, but they didn't have therapists. So, you know, they would just, they would just go to the local, the local witch, you know. It, um, so now that is, that is sort of the day-to-day -day lives of, of nights. So now we're getting into the dessert, which I think is the best part of this episode. So, so I see we're only halfway through. So it's it's this is like a yeah, big dessert. Yeah, it this is. is like having a salad and then having like the chocolate fudge cake for for dessert. Yeah. Quite quite good. But um, so you've had humans. Uh, so from the earliest stories of humans, the most popular storyline throughout tends to revolve around some dude rescuing some woman. 
somewhere. So you had like, you know, Perseus and Andromeda and the Achaeans assembled to go rescue her, or at least reclaim Helen, uh, whether she wanted to be rescued or not, and, and whatnot. So this has never gone out of style. It's popular with men and women. In medieval time, the medieval knight was probably like the most, you know, bastion of this idea of like, you know, rescuing any damsel in distress. Uh, but mm. did it actually ever happen? And so we looked for a really long time, not just me, a few authors, to try to find one instance. We was, this was a team effort. And we dug deep, I can tell you. And we went in, like, British archives are great. Uh, like some of the stuff they have available. You can look at court cases and all this stuff. And we couldn't find one. Not one. Not <laughs> but with one exception we'll get to in a bit, which you might consider it's a knight rescuing a damsel in distress in kind of the most British way possible. So yeah, there is, that's not to say there's not many, many stories of supposedly this happened. It's just that in every case, uh, one is just, it just very much has all the telltale earmarks of being a romanticized story Mm. of just sort of illustrating the chivalrous night of medieval times, which as we noted was like a thing back then that they liked to talk about a lot, even if no one ever actually did it, uh, or at least not, not common. So, we even have a case. So one of the stories we found was, so there's a knight. There's this knight. Uh, see, what was his name? This, this one's in the Frozarts Chronicles. Uh, so Sir John de Coronier's wife, Eleanor, gets kidnapped yeah. by the king of Portugal because he, re- he really thinks she's hot. And so he abducts her, rapes her. And then eventually he's like, all right, I really like you. Um, so I'm going to make you my wife. And he has a daughter with her. And no point in this. She's like, thanks. Yeah. And no point in this story is the husband, who in the story seems to have still been alive through all this. Did he do anything about it or seem to care at all? So now we're thinking like, all right, we're going to look. And this is what we did. Okay, there's tons of instances of kidnapped women. You know, you got all these court records and it's very well documented. Surely, if it's like a noble woman, these noble women, they're surrounded by knights. Literally, they're like their husbands and their children and their uncles. And like, surely one of these knights cares if she gets kidnapped. And then it's like, hey... That's my niece you kidnapped. I'm going to come <laughs> rescue her. Uh, and yeah. no, uh, no, no. Um, in fact, medieval wealthy women of nobility, of the nobility or just wealthy, they got abducted constantly in medieval times. This was just a part of your life. And, and it doesn't seem as if they could rely on the knights or anyone at all to come rescue them. And so we have some um, examples of this. So why, uh, first, first, why are the nobility, why are these noble women so prone to being kidnapped? And it's because if they, it was particularly widows were the, were the most uh, in danger. Because if you had like a, a, a young woman whose father was still alive or like this, where she hadn't got her inheritance yet, what would happen is he, the father could just disinherit her. And so there was really no profit in it unless you just really liked her or whatever. Uh, but if it was a widow, she had, she had means. She's a noble woman. She's got, you know, lands and things like this. And so if you could just, all you had to do was have sex with her and then you could call her your wife. And if you, so all you had to do was capture her and then she's your wife. And then you at least get to manage her estate. And in many cases, it's yours now. It's not hers anymore. Now it's yours because she's your wife. And so some of them wow, would try to make you, it. That is dark. That is, yeah. Uh... And there was no laws against this for, and we'll, we'll talk about how this got changed. The laws got changed in a, um, in a bit, but um, and much late, like late in medieval uh, times. Like, um, so Sometimes they would also try to, they would just find a priest to go ahead and marry um, them as well. And then they would rape her in, uh, after. Uh, and, it, you know, the woman's wishes didn't really count here. Um, so now we got examples. So, for example, we have the case of Matilda Fuller, who was assaulted by one William Willips. His name is literally Willips. And yeah. so he, W-L-F-S. the parson, yes. yeah, the par- he, the parson he worked for, he was a servant, and four unknown men broke into Fuller's home. They threatened to kill her. If she would just, if she wouldn't promise to marry Willips. So once she agreed, he then, of course, rapes her, consummates the marriage, and now she's his wife. But she did complain after to the authorities, and there was a court case for this. That's why we have a record of it. And they, the court, they, they found him guilty of doing this, but no punishment. He just got away, and there's no record of what happened to Fuller after. Um, so there was nothing. What? Yeah, there's just a sentence, nothing. <laughs> yeah, something, nothing. Good, good for you and finding a wife, dude. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, um, another case, uh, some of these, there's one coming up that's really good. But um, so first, we're starting with some of the more lower class women. So Mary de Metafield, she was assaulted and uh, briefly managed to avoid being kidnapped by holding onto a tree. And this is like, it just sucked. Back then, everything was horrible. It didn't matter who you are. Like, so she holds onto this tree for dear life. But eventually she gets dragged away, put in 
Jeffrey Sandcroft's brother's house in his basement. And then he's frequently, over the course of several days, would try to rape her to seal the marriage. Uh, no one came to her rescue. She did it herself. For five straight days, she just screamed her head off every time he would come near um, and fought tooth and nail, basically, until he got tired of it and said, this isn't worth it and let her go. And so, yeah, she, she, she got away. And then away. nothing ever happened to him. Like <laughs> and that. nothing ever happened to him, but at least she got away. Uh, it's something. I mean, at least on the plus side there. I mean, if that was, uh, if this was modern times and this happens, he'd be like, well, I'm definitely gonna have to kill you because yeah, otherwise yeah. I'm gonna go to prison. So <laughs> yeah. on the plus side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, this is how dark where that's the plus side. <laughs> like, yeah, um, I, good yeah. Lord. Yeah, so moving on to the nobility. So the Countess of Lincoln and Silsbury, Alice de Lacey, she was abducted not once, but several times. Uh, so the first time she was still married at the time. So she gets uh, abducted, uh, ironically, by a group of knights pledged to the Earl of Surrey, de John, John de Warren. War oh, that's good. John I like that. Rain, I don't know. You should yeah, just read just all the names because... pronunciation. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... Sound I, too French. Some of these are weird. But this one, so her... You'd think her, her noble husband, Earl Thomas of Lancaster, right? He's going to come to her rescue. It's his wife, right? And he did go to war with Warong. But... Oh. At no point during this war did he ever ask for his wife back or even seem to care at all. Like it was just an excuse to go to war with this guy that he hated. Uh, and they, they just, you know, they went to war and fought. And at no point did he care to get his wife. And eventually Earl Thomas was executed for treason. Uh, and so Alice's lands then were mostly taken by the king by force. So he kidnapped her then and imprisoned her and threatened to have her executed until she made a deal giving up her lands of her own free will um, to him. So free will. Yeah, yeah. Free will. So she gets released eventually when she does this. And then she's still more or less under house arrest until she gives up other lands uh, and pay a massive a 20,000 pound indemnity, uh, which I don't know uh, what inflation, that's but that's a lot of money back then. It's a lot of money today. And this was a long time ago. Yeah. Incidentally, the John de Warren, he was given many of her lands as part of all this thing. The king took some of the lands and gave them to him. So at no point did any knight come to her aid, of course. And now she's 42. You know, she's got less lands. Uh, but she marries a knight by the name of Baron Eubulus Lestrange. And that one was apparently a union of love. He didn't even bother to claim any of her remaining property or take the title that was now due to him. They just seemed to really like each other. And their surviving letters, they seemed to be a very happy and loving couple. So she has this, this period of happiness for 12 years before he dies. And now she's once again... And during this period, she actually got uh, some of her lands back. Um, and then he dies and now she's once again a wealthy widow, not a good place to be. So to protect herself, mm. she makes a vow of chastity. So she now is in her 50s. And so this offered her some protection by the church, because if if anyone would violate that, the church is going to get upset about it, presumably. But what actually ended up happening. So uh, not long after one Baron Hugh Defray kidnapped her, um, as described in Michael Prestwich's The Three Edwards. He entered the castle with the complicity of some of her servants and seized her in the hall. She was permitted to go up to her chamber to collect her things together, and when she came down, was placed firmly on horseback. Only then did she realize the gravity of her situation, and she promptly fell off in an attempt to escape. She was put back on, with a groom mounted behind her to hold on to her, and led off to Somerton Castle. There, according to the record, Hugh raped her in breach of the king's peace. Yeah, so, so it didn't offer that much protection. Apparently. No, it didn't, but it, I mean, maybe... Yeah, I guess it didn't take long, so yeah, not really. But um, so, and to add insult to injury, she was then chastised by none other than oh, the Pope no. himself. The Pope himself for breaking her vow of chastity. This is like women who get raped in Saudi Arabia, and it's like, oh, yeah. you're going to prison, or you're going to get stoned for sex outside of marriage. It's yeah. like, are you, what is going on? What is wrong with you? Yeah, so luckily for her, though, her new husband dies within a year, and we can only hope she had something to do with it. Um, and so uh, so then she reaffirms her vow of chastity, and then she calls herself the Countess of Lincoln and widow of, of Eubulus Lestrange, the, the one husband she liked. Uh, and so she's an incredibly wealthy widow, so still not safe. Not, not a good time to be, vow of chastity or no. So two years later, she finds herself kidnapped again. Um, this time by none on. other than her late beloved husband, the one she loved, his nephew and the heir and also her own half-brother are the ones who kidnapped her. And uh, they... Wait, how's, she her, how's that her half-brother? Well, and one of her half-brothers. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. and so they did not... They didn't want to marry her. They just wanted some of her, her lands. Uh, and just, you know, a little bit like the king was like, you give us some of your property and we'll let you go. So, yeah. 
that was her her story. So in another case, well, that was dark. <laughs> it was 15th century. Uh, this one, Marjorie Malafont was married to Sir Thomas Malafont, and she was kidnapped and forced to marry another. And in this case, you might. Is this just a load of stories where knights didn't do? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, we had, there are cases where we found where you'd think a knight would do something, and, and then just you know, it was often more like not like the knights themselves causing the problem. So. Wow. Now, Sir Thomas, her husband, he actually died. She didn't know he was dead at the time. Uh, at the first, when she got kidnapped, she didn't know he was dead. It was just like, this is how quick this happened. Uh, so Sir Thomas was off in London and uh, he, he died. And so she was home in Pembrokeshire. And so mm-hmm. her former husband, Sir Thomas, his very close friend, one of his closest confidants, Louis Layson, uh, was sent to fetch to fetch her to, to go inform her like, hey, your husband died and you're probably not safe. So come home. Uh, or come here. Mm-hmm. And so uh, her mother, Jane Astley, but her mother is not, you know, ignorant of the risks here. And so when by sending this Lewis Layson, she says, hey, you're married, right? Like, is it you're all good? Because if you're already married and, and he's like, yeah, I'm not married. Oh, he's not married. Not he's married. not married, married is he? He's not married. Oh, so he, he went Lewis. and he, he immediately kidnapped her and imprisoned her and informed her <laughs> her husband was dead and told her, of course, she had to marry him. She declined. Uh, but he nonetheless found a minister to perform the ceremony anyway, and then raped her, and then was officially. Dude, the was past was the worst. It was the worst, this but is in a her bad time. This case, I Mar- was saying like I don't want to be sent back a thousand years to be a peasant. No, I mean peasant. on the plus side, at least I'm a dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the like yeah peasant woman. Not I mean yeah either way peasant, not good. But um, yeah, so Marjorie though she's having none of this. She's like no, so she flees her new husband and she petitions the courts. And this was, of course, a little later in medieval times, so things were a little, a uh, little better. And so she wants the marriage, uh, you know, rescinded and whatnot. And this, the outcome of this trial actually wasn't documented, but we did find a later record where she went by widow of Thomas Malafont. And so presumably, either either the guy died, or uh, she she actually won the court case. Um, but that's it's actually not clear from the from the documents of the court case. But she wasn't going by his name. So um, hopefully, I hope he died. Yeah, or she like killed him. Like, yeah, you you gotta hope that other one that like she was just like secretly poisoning him. You know, like here, have some food. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, my hope. Yeah. So in yet this one, this case is the one is the is the sort of um, exception where it was like it's gonna be up to up to the audience to decide if this is a knight coming to the rescue of 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 a woman in distress. And so in this case, we have one Joan Boma who is kidnapped by forty men and forced to marry Edward Lancaster. And of course, the, the classic formula at this point of getting a priest. Do you really need 40 men to capture one woman? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. excessive. It does seem excessive, unless, I mean, maybe they were worried about, you know, her being protected or whatever. But um, so Beaumont was already engaged to one Charles Noel, who um, he didn't come to her rescue, sword drawn, and he was not a knight, but he instead petitioned Parliament, as, as you would when you're British. And he, noteworthy here, he was not just petitioning. Uh, parliament for to fix this case but for all cases because this was a really a problem and uh, they felt he felt there needed to be some laws to protect the ladies um the particularly Agreed. the yeah to to actually stop this stuff from happening and so the the british national archives do detail the the petition itself very well um but they don't actually mention how the court case turned out but um it seemed to indicate she um joan married charles new in 1452 we found a record of that later and so it seems like this was probably a happy ending in this case. But so how does this, I said, Charles Noel's not a knight. How is this a knight coming to her rescue? Um, so Beaumont's former husband, Henry Beaumont, he was a knight before he died, making her son, Henry Beaumont, who was a co-petitioner with Charles Noel to Parliament. So it's not exactly like him, you know, swords drawn, rushing to help his mother. But he was a knight who petitioned yeah. very strongly to Parliament to help his mother. So... <laughs> If that counts. Okay. And it seems to have worked. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It was his mom. I don't know if it really counts as like what we have in our minds (laughs) from fiction. But it seems like a very British knight thing to do. Like, I'm going to petition Parliament. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, draw your sword, sir. (laughs) Absolutely not. I shall petition Parliament. (laughs) This shall not stand. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, and we should note here. That actually we'll see some, what my local MP has to say about this. <laughs> we should note here that um, 
while a lot of these, of course, were horrible for the woman in case these sorts of like kidnapping and stuff, some people, some clever people, peasants and, and whatnot and, and others came to be like, hey, we can use this fact that I can kidnap and marry this woman and not get in trouble to actually like if I love this girl and her family's like, no, you're not marrying her. You know, you're not good enough or whatever or whatever, uh, yeah. you know, the two ends. And the woman, of course, doesn't have any say in it. But if she's like, yeah, I want to marry you. And so this does seem to have been a, a case where sometimes people, some of these were actually the person kidnapping, supposedly raping and stuff. But actually, this was the, you know, the couple just wanted to be together. And this was their way of making that happen if the, if the family objected or whatever. And so there does, there okay. is some... I mean, I don't think we should keep this law on the books. <laughs> no, no like, yeah, allowing it, but situation. It, it does seem to be a way that people made that happen. Yeah. So we have an example, like in 1356, court case of Thomas Mott, who supposedly kidnapped and raped one Joan Cogeshale of London and her guardian, Henry Legalis. Uh, he pledged, uh, he had been pledged to protect Joan's chastity. He failed on that one. Uh, and so he... <laughs> but Shocking. Uh, yeah, in this case, the jury decided to quote... Thomas abducted the same Joan with her assent and her permission. Unfortunately, Thomas was not a knight, because otherwise that would have worked here. I was rescuing a damsel in distress because she had been put in a convent against her will, and those convents back then were not awesome for the ladies. And so she wanted out, and uh, Thomas got her out and then married her. But yeah, so he sort of rescued her, but not a knight, unfortunately. Close, but so an, an interesting thing about this, these, these fake kidnappings, right? There actually were laws put on the books to stop this happening before there were laws yeah, on the books to stop the What's actual ones. On? Yeah. This, the, 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 the yeah. was the worst. It was the worst. And yeah, stealing another man's wife actually wasn't uh, too common uh, like this. I mean, that, that example with the King of Portugal uh, exception, but like this wasn't because there wasn't a lot of profit in it. And as we got into on the surprisingly recent time, British husbands sold their wives at market. Uh, so the women were just property. Oh, we made a video about this, right? Yeah, this one's super good. Um, so women were considered property, of course, in the eyes of the law. So if you stole another man's wife, uh, that was not going to work out for you because you just stole his property. And there are laws against stealing someone's property. So oh, you would have to. Of course. That yeah. <laughs> That's what we got to first. Yeah. And if people are wondering about the, the, the selling the wives at market, it's not as horrible as it seems. It was actually seemed to be in, on the whole consent by both parties. It was just a way for the poor people who had no real means of getting divorced as a way to do that because you you couldn't get divorced. But what you can do is sell your property. If you're a guy, you can sell your property so you can auction your wife off. Someone else pays. And so as far in the eyes of the, the commoners, this was a way to get divorced. It was not a legal way to get divorced, but the authorities tended to look the other way because um, clearly they didn't care about women. But also it seemed to be in the, in the vast majority of the cases we have record of, it seemed to be that everybody involved was was good with this like the you know it was like mutual divorce and and often the auction was just a fake thing like the the person that was going to purchase was already prearranged you know with the with the with the woman and everything in most of the cases um so it was tended to be and also a lot of the money paid was often just used to throw a party afterwards so yeah for everyone so it seems it's kind of the authorities looked the other way on it for quite some time but that one's that, that full story is quite, is quite interesting if people want to go watch that video and so, yeah, as you might be guessing from all this, the, the chivalric code was more like guidelines uh, and, and people, nobody really followed them. And, and even, note here, the guy who actually popularized the idea of courtly love in the first place in the 12th century, Andreas Capellanus, uh, he no. noted, yeah, he, he noted that knights were free to do as they wished with any peasant woman. If they encountered, just do what you want. They're peasants. Who cares? But the, the noble <laughs> women. The people. Yeah. The noble women is who the, the knights were supposed to respect, but clearly they didn't even do that. And so, yeah, they're, they're not surprising that we couldn't find any knights rescuing women of, of any sort, especially. But, um, but there is our one hope. Not our even one. a single one. Yeah, it's our one hope. So these knights, they're all raised on these chivalric stories. Surely one of them in their teens is like, yeah, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be an awesome chivalrous knight. Like surely there had to have been one. And so we do find... Yeah, man. It's like I grew up and I wanted to be an astronaut. You know what happens? <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, no. Yeah, there's a can't do that. I guess I have to be just a, a kidnapping, yeah, raping to... murderer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So, but we do have the, uh, the order... Is it going to just be a bit of a... D <laughs> yeah. The order of Empress de... I don't know. You read this one. It's French. Uh, why do you think I know how to say it? You took French uh, in high school. Yeah, like 20 years ago. Uh, Empress de la Escuve à la Dame Blanche. Maybe. So established in 1399. So this uh, this was this guy who established it. Uh, he was the Marshal of France and Governor of Genoa, Sir John 
the second Le Mignora. <laughs> and the, his, I'm going to, I'm not going to go say his Jean. The name. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, good. Uh, so his. Jean Luc Picard, man. There you go. That's, yeah, that's yeah. French. Yeah. So this order that he created, which we're not going to say the name of again, was, uh, it was comprised of 13 knights. And why are they noteworthy? And why do we think this could be, this could be our hope? The knights these, are around table. These 13 knights, their specific order was dedicated to defending women's honors and their estate. And it was formed specifically because he got tired, this Sir Jean, he got tired of all the women writing him, noble women, of course, writing him and telling him of all these horrible things that were happening to them all the time. And he was like, I'm going to put a stop to this. So he, he, he makes this knighthood, this, this order of 13 knights and... He sends it's got out, nothing to do with the Knights of the Round Table, does it? No. He sends out letters. He forms this group, and then he sends out letters across France saying his order from his point forward will defend the noble women. And like if they petition them, they will come to their aid. They will drop whatever they're doing and come. So people need to knock it off, you know, leave them alone. Uh, so this, so surely, okay. surely we have one. I like it. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Why Because you've already kind of said, <laughs> yeah, no. how do they even fail with this? So, Sir Jean... His entire uh, career as a knight is well-documented, extremely well-documented, his extensive career. He was very famous. And never once does it seem that he dropped anything to go help any woman because yeah, there's just no record of it ever happening. And then she think, well, he had thir- there's 13 knights. Like one of them, one of them one had of to, them. right? And it doesn't, there's and there's, 12 left. <laughs> yeah, there's, it doesn't really seem so. There's not, but like we're, we're willing to concede like this is this is the whole point of the order, right? So surely, even if it's not documented, at least one of them one time, because they did send out this letter. So surely, the women who get this letter, they're like, "Yeah, I'm gonna petition." Like something. I feel just like odds like, are it happens once. It's just not. It recorded. had to. It had to have, right? Yeah. Like you'd think, but no, there's no record of it. So um, <laughs> and given all the given all the records we do have, all the stories of what middle, medieval knights really did get up to. It seemed like if they were going to, if, if there was a story involving a damsel in distress and a knight, it was probably the knight who was putting them in distress uh, and not, not rescue them. Yeah, so there's not much there. So we go to, uh, as 18th and 19th century historian Jean-Charles Leonard de Sismondi aptly sums up of the myth of the chivalrous knight. The more closely we look into history, the more clearly shall we perceive that the system of chivalry is an invention almost entirely poetical. It is always represented as distant from us both in time and place, and whilst the contemporary historians give us a clear, detailed, and complete account of the vices of the court and of the great of the ferocity or corruption of the nobles and the civility of the people, we are astonished to find the poets, after a long lapse of time, adorning the very same ages with the most splendid fictions of grace, virtue, and loyalty. The Romance writers of the 12th century placed the age of chivalry in the time of Charmaine. The period when these writers existed is the time pointed out by Francis I. At the present day, 1810, we imagine we can still see chivalry flourishing in the persons of Dugosselon and Bayard under Charles V and Francis I. But when we come to examine either the one period or the other, although we find in each some heroic spirits, we are forced to confess that it is necessary to antedate the age of chivalry at least three or four centuries before any period of authentic history. So in summation, oh, that's why they call me one take whistler. <laughs> yeah. So in summation, that was not bad. It never, it never happened. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's it. That's our, that's our episode for today. Oh, um, I love it. Yeah. So no, knights, knights were <laughs> what we've learned today. Knights weren't chivalric at all. They were. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently there was that one knight who, who married that woman. You know, uh, who got oh, I'm sure there were time. some good ones, but yeah. the vast majority. <laughs> yeah, they 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 were good, but um, it was bad if you were a noble woman. It was worse if you were a peasant. Yeah, it was bad if you were just a woman back then, and uh, bad yeah. if you were a man in some ways. Um, not awesome. Yeah. Just Unless, just slightly less bad. Yeah, I mean, even the knights had to look forward to like getting maimed and you know, like going in melees and uh, you know. It's not awesome. Yeah, dude. I mean, we said it again. The past sucks. No one, like... Yeah. No. For, just yeah. no. You don't want it. Forget nostalgia. It doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, it exists, but, like, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was watching. Um, there was a speech of, like, a good awesome holiday, or uh, Hollywood speeches or whatever on, um, on YouTube, one of those compilations things. And they had that mm. one... Um, that, it was from, one like... One of those recently came up on my homepage. It's weird. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it was like from the news newsroom or something. I don't know, whatever it was. Oh, is this the one with Jeff Daniels? 
Yeah. Yes. It's a great show. Yeah. But that he has this quote about, you know, like America sucks right now and like and how it was so awesome, you know, before because we had yeah, all these the like opening things. monologue of the entire series, I think. And the first part of that monologue is, OK, that's solid. But the second part is just like, no, you're just wrong about every point you're talking about there. Like that is that is so rose colored glasses view of the past. Like it's it's it's, you know, and it's supposed to be this inspiring speech and it kind of ruined it for me because um, it was just like. Somebody hasn't cracked the history book ever. Like, you know. Yeah. 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 That makes yeah. sense. It's like, yeah, yeah. The, the past. I was, I think I was talking about this on, uh, maybe it was a business plays rant I went on. And, you know, I don't know. I feel like, especially in maybe American movies and stuff, the 1950s are always like romanticized, particularly as this yeah. kind of like time of, I don't know, like more or, you know, yeah, whatever yeah. like everything whenever you see a film set in the 1950s everything's like filmed with a slightly gold filter a yellow filter on everything and everything's like these big clean colors and food tastes good and all of this stuff and it's like yeah but women didn't really have any have many rights everyone no. was a, everything was super racist and yeah. we were all gonna get blown up by nuclear bombs <laughs> well and you were all dying of like various diseases constantly like non-stop yeah, yeah. and like yeah, it wasn't a good time and it wasn't and like if you crack any history book ever, like right now, like as horrible as, you know, people make jokes, 2020, all that, like as horrible as people say, like, no, right now, like this is when you want to live like in history. Yeah. Like I said, maybe yeah. 2019 was better, but like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right now is when everyone should want to be alive. Um, basically, is the summation of this episode. Yeah. And there was, didn't we do one uh, about Howard Hughes? And how he had his own Netflix, like in the 1960s yeah. or something, where it just yeah, phoned yeah. up the TV station he owned and said, play this movie. And he yeah. was like the richest man. in the He was like a billionaire, could do whatever he wanted. And he was still watching it on a tiny ass TV. And I was like, yeah, we and just fired Limited up. selection. <laughs> exactly. And like, just before this show. We have what Howard like, Hughes had. It's like midnight. Like decades ago, on the bus. Yeah, it is midnight here. And I pull out my phone, click Uber Eats. And I get food delivered to me at midnight to my office because yeah. I was hungry before the show. And like, it just happens. Like I just sat there, you know, like this, this it's awesome right now. Like, and it's not like crazy expensive. No, no, yeah. it's incredible. Now it's awesome. I love it. The present is the best. The future is even better. Uh, yeah. Shall we wrap things up? Yes. Yes. Sounds good. Okay. If you'd like to leave us a review, that would be awfully kind of you. And also if, uh, when we get to a thousand reviews on Amazon US, we're going to give away a thousand dollar Amazon gift card to one lucky person who left a review. So that's a good reason to do it. Thousand um, dollars is a lot of that's a lot of Amazon dollars. I mean, I guess mm -hmm. they're the same as regular dollars because where else do you shop? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that'll be good. Do that. You don't have to leave it on uh, iTunes US or podcasts, Apple Podcasts US. That's just where we're, you know, reaching our goal. But we'll go through all the major podcasting platforms and. Uh, yeah, someone will win that. That'll be fun. Check out our new show or a revitalization of an old show, Highlight History, on YouTube if you fancy some more stuff from us. And uh, we'll we'll see you soon, right? We get another episode recording soon, I bet. Yeah, we do. Looking forward to it. All right, bye for now. You committed a small genocide. Eh, no more sports. <laughs>